Hello there, welcome to the Motion E podcast. I'm Stuart Garlick, and in this edition, we're doing the second episode in our um, hopefully fairly regular series of off track podcasts. This is where we talk to someone who is interesting within the world of motorsport or someone who is interested in motorsport about their uh, life, their career, and about what it is that attracts them to cars going fast around the track. So uh, this time we're talking to Elizabeth Blackstock. She is a journalist for uh, Jalopnik. And by the way, I am all for Jalopnik journalists and staff getting a fair deal on their contract negotiations. Elizabeth spoke to me to talk about her career in motorsport journalism, how she got there, the way that she chooses her articles, also how her interest in literature and in creative writing has seeped into the way that she writes about motorsport. Uh, We also talked about American and North American drivers uh, and how and why they might be successful in Europe. And we also talked about uh, why it might not be such a great idea to go sim racing with an Xbox controller. So sit back and enjoy. This is Off Track Episode 2 with Elizabeth Blackstock. Elizabeth Blackstock, welcome to the second episode of the Motion E Off Track podcast. This is where we have uh, a semi-structured, unscripted chat about uh, people's history in motorsport and motoring and really find out a bit about uh, people who maybe have, you know, come across as positive for some reason. So um, you've been a writer for Yulopnik for quite a long time now. You can tell us how long in a moment, but uh, you've you've written some really impressive articles. And the, the thing that I like about you and the reason I wanted you to come on the podcast was because you have a lot of fun with your subjects. And yes, you get in a bit of uh, trouble with uh, trolls and, you know, terrible people in the comments for that sometimes, but you even seem to write that and have fun with it. And um, I, I would love to know a bit more about you know, your history as a writer and um, your history with motoring and just um, how you came to develop your style, if you like, of writing as well. But uh, first of all, you know, tell us how long you've been at Yulopnik and uh, how long you've been a writer about motoring for. And with Yulopnik since 2018, I believe. Uh, I started as a Saturday writer and then I went full time about a year afterward. And I was a full-time writer for about a year, uh, at which point I left for a little while because I was in grad school full-time and doing uh, a grad degree and also working full-time was a little bit much. Uh, Then I came back for about a year again as a weekend writer, Saturday, Sunday, and now I'm the full-time breaking news editor. And uh, well, you, you've you've written some great breaking news, which we've covered in the previous podcast about Formula E. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm I'm particularly interested in um, what got what got you into and passionate about cars in the first place. Um, do do you come from a very motoring heavy household, for example? Yes, um, I grew up in Michigan, so there's you know we were very embedded in the car industry as a family. Um, so almost everyone on my mom's side of the family worked for General Motors. My dad was an automotive engineer, a mechanical engineer. So we we had cars around all the time. We had a garage with a bunch of the you know classic American muscle cars. We had a Barracuda, we had a Trans Am, we had a Mustang, um, and we watched a lot of NASCAR. Uh, that I, I I was a big Mark Martin fan as a child. So mm. um, you know my my passion for it started extremely early. 
but I did, I fell out of it as I got older because uh, I went through that phase where you can't think that anything your parents like is cool because that <laughs> makes you lame. Um, but I kind of, I came back to it while I was in high school. We saw the movie Rush the day it came out. Mm. And from that point on, you know, I realized suddenly, oh my God, there are stories to tell about racing that I didn't even realize existed. Um, and I went home and started researching the 1970s Formula One scene. Um, and from that point, I think it kind of clicked that, you know, I always wanted to be a writer, but this here is what I want to write about. Yeah, and, and th that comes across so much. You you do have a way of finding the story in things. Um, do, do you think that uh, a lot of writers get it wrong when they when 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 they focus on the process on the action? Do you think that actually it it should be about finding the overarching narrative? And is, is that something you've always looked for when you write about racing or when you write about cars? Have you have you always looked for the story behind what people say, for example? I don't I don't want to say that anyone is wrong for their approach. Um, and I just think that there are a lot of valid approaches. And I saw, you know, there's there's only so many times that someone can write a race report um, and be recognized for doing it. Um, it's, you know, it is what it is. Everyone has watched the same event and you recapping it is not necessarily um, it's it's not something that people are going to talk about the same way that they will if you were to find something a little bit deeper to have done an interview or to have found a narrative that is really important within that. Um, and that's the same way with the automotive industry as well. You can report on the release of a brand new car and you can do that the same as everyone else. But the way that you do it, the story that you find, um, that little detail that you can draw out and explain as to why that's important. Um, I think that that's always kind of been my passion. I don't come from a journalism background. Um, I actually come from creative writing. Hmm. Um, and when I was a kid, all I did was read books. So I think my style and my the way that I look for stories has developed out of the fact that, you know, I'm looking for something interesting that I want to sit down and read and I want to learn about something as opposed to, you know, just reporting on straight facts. Um, if it's something that I can get in a press release, there's there's not a, a story there um, unless I've found something within those details that I can pull out and, you know, put in history or, you know, what have you. Which I suppose is why you enjoyed reading Sterling Moss's book, A Turn at the Wheel, uh, for the Jalopnik mm. Book Club a, um, a, a while back. Um, it, do, do you do you enjoy sort of uh, bringing your um, your creative writing interest into cars and motorsport in a way that perhaps isn't done very much? And uh, um, it, um, is uh, is the sort of book review format something you'd like to do a lot more of in the future? Yes, I I love book reviews um, and I love. I think there there's a lot, uh, especially with the the older books, that we we don't see uh, as much now. So I if I were to write a book about Formula One in the 1960s, uh, it would be there would be so much historical context. There's reflection. I can see how that specific era of time played out in the long run. Uh, so I can see how important it is today. But I think the really fascinating thing is to see how it was perceived at the time. So Sterling Moss, obviously, he published that book in the early 1960s about an era he had just lived. 
um, which was it's fascinating to see because he doesn't have that that context. He doesn't know what's happening next. He doesn't know, you know, he I don't even I believe he published this book before he had his, the accident that hmm. ended his career. So he has no idea that that's coming in his future. So it's it's really interesting, I think, to see those those thought processes play out in real time, which is it that's something that really interests me. Um, the way that we see things, the way we interpret things, um, the way we experience things that's significantly different from someone else. And that's something I kind of try to to curate in my the writers that I work with at Jalopnik. Um there are a lot of people who like I don't know anything about video games, but people who are passionate about them will write about them in a way that's interesting that makes you want to read about them. Um, and I've I've found that if you kind of give people that opportunity to find their passion and grow with it, like that's what's going to give you the best stories. And that's kind of something you know. I like Formula One. I like racing generally. I love Formula E. I want to learn about all of it and I want to tell everyone about what's what's important about it in a way that that's interesting in a way that hasn't been done before so do, do you go to Jalopnik with the stories or do they come to you and say uh, hey what do you think about something related to this we we usually do a little bit of back and forth um they they give me a lot of editorial freedom they give all, all of the writers there a lot of editorial freedom uh, to come forward to say here's what I think is interesting about XYZ. Um, because, you know, you can assign someone a story, but if they're not interested in what that story is, you're not going to have a very exciting piece to read about it. So they, they generally have me come to them, um, pitch them story ideas, different features, interviews that I want to do, um, at which point it's either a yes, no, or here's how we can kind of develop the story a little bit more to make it more interesting. Um, but especially it with motorsport kind of being my, my subject matter of choice, it's very, you know, I get the freedom to kind of go out and do what I'd like to do. Uh, and they trust that I'm going to bring them an interesting story in return. And, and you recently interviewed the nicest man in motorsport, Roman Grosjean as well. That must have been yes. quite an experience. Yes, that was very that was very exciting. Um, that man always has a smile on his face. <laughs> so uh, it was it was part of you know I was doing kind of a double take with that interview where hmm. I was interviewing him about the upcoming IndyCar season and also about the way that he uses at home racing simulators like R Factor Two as a way to kind of prep for for entering an entirely new form of motorsport. Um, and he, yeah, he was just in incredibly generous with his answers. Very sweet. Um, never really had a bad experience with a race car driver, um, that has consented to do an interview. So it's, it's always been, um, you know, it's been great. I've, I've enjoyed it. I'm, it's still my passion well above and beyond anything else I could possibly be doing with my life. So I think that kind of comes across in the writing. 
Um, I, I mean, I, I, I also don't come from a car journalism background. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I guess, I, I guess, I come from a blogging and then regional news background. So, uh, uh, mm-hmm. from when, when I, when I read people's um, um, incredibly good driver interviews, not just yours but other other writers, I'm, I'm always surprised by the process behind it because um, it, when you're when you're when you're a kid and you're reading Autosport or F1, you're racing. You, you, you kind of imagine these people, you know, interviewing Kimi Raikkonen on a yacht for an hour, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. but. In reality, you're mostly in in a beige room with strip lighting for fifteen minutes, and you have to get something good out of them. I mean, is there a, is there an art to then you know teasing that into an article that makes it sound like you were maybe more in depth than you maybe actually were? Yeah, there's. I think the significant bulk of what you're doing in an interview is the prep work. Um, the interview where you actually speak to the driver is almost secondary to what you've done before you even sit down. So I usually go through press releases, news releases, and recent interviews to see what people have talked about with this driver, um, because I don't want to have to ask the same questions if I am aware that someone else has already asked this. Um, And then I kind of try to craft my questions based on different angles or things that I find interesting about what they've said. So with that Grosjean interview, um, you know, by virtue of it being about sim racing, um, that was that was fascinating in and of itself. That presented its own angle, um, and that was how that interview was pitched to me. Um, was you know Grosjean is looking to speak about R Factor too, uh, and I was like, great, that gives me you know the angle I want to talk about already. Um, but for other interviews, you kind of have to be. You have to be very vigilant. Um, If I were a race car driver, I would hate answering the same questions every single day. So I kind of try to be conscious of that fact and find, you know, do my research, understand what they've recently been talking about, and then try to find something either within what they've been talking about or completely different to, to ask them. Yeah, and uh, well, you, you you seem to go, do a good job of that. And so, something else that you seem to like to do is take on challenges for your articles, which um, might be at things that you know you, you're not an expert at or you're not good at. And in in, in such a gatekeepy world as uh, motoring, stroke motorsport, it's very brave to do that. So, for example, mm-hmm. your your article recently about trying eye racing on a controller. You were very clear with all your Twitter followers that you knew this was not the way to play eye racing, but you still wanted yes. to do it. And um, mm-hmm. um, so maybe tell people who've not read it uh, what was the genesis of that article what made you want to try eye racing and what made you decide okay you know um i'm going to do it on a controller and then write about that um even in spite of the obvious well actually as you knew you were going to get it, it's actually kind of a funny story um my husband is a very big eye racer so he has a little league that he races you know he races against all of his friends and they're all my friends as well so I've been meaning to, you know, start eye racing at some point in my life, um, you know, just to just to understand uh, the. I'm a I'm a writer. I'm not a racer, so I want to kind of better understand the racing perspective without actually having to find a race car uh, to drive. So you know, it's been on my bucket list. It just hasn't happened because I am always consistently so busy that sitting down for an hour and playing a video game is like the most difficult thing in the world. Um, mm. But my husband decided that I was going to 
do this, you know, this fun run with the league that's not for points, um, just just to see. Um, and you know, I haven't talked to a lot of these these friends we have in a little while, so I was like, you know, sounds like a good idea. We don't have a steering wheel at the moment. Uh, he is Canadian, so he has that up in Canada. We don't have anything down in Texas where we live now. Uh, so it was a, a controller or nothing. Um, and I thought, you know, I might as well have fun with it and see what I can do. <laughs> um, there are plenty of people who are very good at racing on their controllers. Um, Jacques Villeneuve apparently <laughs> yes. did a lot of eye racing on his controller. And there's a lot of people, there are specific leagues designed um, for people who race on their controller. But, you know. All that being said, I was mostly just looking to hang out with my friends uh, and thought as I was doing this, you know, this goofy racing um, to talk about it because there is a very big barrier to sim racing. You know, there's a financial barrier that comes into play. Even if you're buying a very cheap wheel and pedals, it's still a couple hundred dollars to kind of get the job done. So... To look at it from the perspective of here's how you can do it with stuff you probably already have um it was a lot of fun uh, i think it was it's very in line with a lot of the other things that i i like to write about um whether that's you know i'm an automotive journalist that is just now learning how to drive a manual transmission um so to be very transparent and o open about the fact that like not everyone is perfect not everyone knows everything and you are probably going to do a lot of stuff wrong um, just to show like that's totally fine as long as you're having a good time and you're getting something out of it. Like, you know, you might as well throw yourself into it and and see what it is you like or dislike about it. Well, um, not not all not all of us are Jeremy Clarkson, frankly. Not not no. <laughs> uh, not, not not all of us like to fling the tail out. Uh, I, w one of the reasons I have to admit I got into driving electric vehicles was because um, I. I grew up in the UK, obviously a country uh, where people drive on the left side of the road, and uh, mm -hmm. you drive in a right-hand drive car. Um, so um, I I grew up uh, changing gear with my left hand. Um, yeah, uh, I, but, can't um, I don't know how y'all do that, honestly. <laughs> That's beyond me. Yeah, I have a and, hard time with my dominant hand. And damn it, it's 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 so bizarre changing gear with your with 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 your right hand. Um, and um, mm -hmm. so um, I prefer to drive electric cars because then I just need to press the accelerator on the thing and it goes. Um, but mm -hmm. st still, you know, I have this problem when I'm looking out of the offside wing mirror and thinking, oh, gosh, you know, I can probably go a bit closer to the curb. Oh, no, I can't. I've just hit the curb. So that's yeah. regularly a problem for you. Is it a problem for you when you drive on the on the wrong side of the road? Have you ever driven um, on the uh, left-hand side of the road before? I have not. Um, I have... I need an international driver's license to be able to do that, and I do not have one at the moment. Um, but having been in England and struggling enough just to like look left and right um, at the proper time to cross the road has been difficult enough for me. Um, I cannot imagine what it would be like to be on the complete other side of the road. Um, that is a challenge I have yet to undertake, but it is one I'm sure I will at some point. I'll have to report back to you about how it goes. Definitely, definitely. And um, are you going to continue with your burgeoning sim racing career as well? 
Honestly, I had a really, really good time. Um, so I probably will. I would prefer to have a wheel and pedals to do it the next time. Um, because the controller was exhausting. Um, there's, there's no nuance to your inputs with that controller for iRacing. So I enjoy driving on racetracks. I've taken a couple different performance driving schools and it's something mm. that I really enjoy. Although it is extremely terrifying to come to grips with driving fast in an actual vehicle that costs actual money. Um, so the sim racing is fun because I'm not going to crash someone's very expensive vehicle. Um, and I can kind of learn, learn the ropes a little bit without, you know, having to, having to do it right away on the racetrack. This podcast is brought to you by Motion E+. If you go to motione.org forward slash plus, then for €4.50 per month, which works out as about £3.75 per month if you're in the UK, you can get exclusive articles and plenty of content that you can't find anywhere else online about Formula E and electric vehicles. Find out more now. Go to motione.org forward slash plus. Well, there have been instances, of course, with very well-connected journalists, uh, mm-hmm. such as the guy from Road and Track, getting mm-hmm. to... Well, for example, he got a go in the Audi Gen 2 car when Formula E went to the Gen 2 era. Um, it, would you consider using your connections to try and get into a get into a top-level race car at some point, just for a couple of laps? Honestly, I would love that a lot. Um, that is something that's been on my bucket list, Um I don't know how familiar you are with IndyCar, but IndyCar has the two-seater uh, experience. So you're mm. in the back seat, being driven by a, a professional racing driver, and you know experiencing that and the way that the downforce works on a race car, and the way that you know that was my first time in an open wheel car, having, having getting getting a lap from a different driver was it blew my mind. Um, so it is something that I would really love to do at some point, and it is something I have had the opportunity to do in the past, but just because of conflicts and timing and whatnot, it hasn't been able to happen. Um, but some point, some point in the near future, I hope I can, I can make it, make it work. I'd especially love to do Formula E. I think, you know, electric cars are extremely cool and it feels a little bit less intimidating than something, something more expensive. I, I agree. I agree. And uh, I, I hope that you get the chance as well when Gen Thank 3 you. comes out. Um, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, coming over from um, IndyCar to European motorsport, we, we've had a lot of people. We've had Michael Andretti. We've had Juan Pablo Montoya. Mm-hmm. We've had Jack Villeneuve as well. And with varying levels of success, I, I almost feel like a lot of uh, particularly American, but, you know, um, drivers in North America in general, they, they look at the experience in particular of Michael Andretti and and they still say, even, you know, um, more than 30 years on, you know, look, I, I don't want to be in that position. And I, I feel like there's a lot of trepidation and fear when it comes to considering that switch to Europe. That That's why I was surprised when Colton Herter looked like he was going to get the, um, um, well, uh, the, the Sauber Alpha drive drive when it looked like Andretti mm-hmm. was going to buy into it. Um, I, were you disappointed not to see someone come over from IndyCar or do you think that maybe someone at a slightly higher level than Colton Herter, like say Joseph Newgarden, who just spoke about it, um, would have been a better choice? 
I would love to see someone kind of take the leap from IndyCar to Formula One. I especially think because um, even if it was an international driver who had come over, there's still that sort of pride that you feel. Um, and I think it's it's difficult for some race fans to understand if they've never watched a race series where they haven't had their country represented. Um, it's it's kind of like you, there's this pride you automatically have for any driver who has come from somewhere that means something to you to go to this high level and race on a massive international stage. Um, I think Colton Hurta would have been a great choice for the Sauber, Alfa Romeo, Andretti, whatever that situation was. I think he would have been great. Um, I also think the the difficulty that we have is that there is such a gap between uh, America and Europe in terms of physical space um in terms of the way that we deal with our racing um in america it's a lot more i don't want to say friendlier but there's more of a, a down home kind of smaller feel to it than you get in something you know if you're in even in formula two or formula three there's a sense of importance and immensity that kind of comes with international racing that i think has presented a little bit of difficulties when you you come from somewhere like America where it's a little bit smaller um, and everyone, you know, everyone kind of is the same in the sense that you're all of the same nationality and you're not, you know, out in the world at large. Um, but yeah, it's it's been, you know, I mean, the first race I went to for Formula One internationally was in Austria and I went because Alexander Rossi was racing in GP2. Um, and I wanted to see the American driver racing in an in international sport on the ladder to Formula One. Um, I don't think Joseph Newgarden at this point is a good choice for anything Formula One related. Um, not not only because he's getting older, but also because of the fact that I think he's very, I think it would go against everything he's established his career around, which is representing IndyCar. Um, I just, I couldn't see him making that switch, but I think there are a lot of, really good drivers in IndyCar who could. Um, I think Colton Herta is one of them. Pato Award is another one that I think we could see and that I would almost love to see in Formula One. Although there is that part of me that's like, I like IndyCar um, and I like these drivers, so I kind of hope they stay local um, mm. because I can't go to a ton of Formula One races every year, but I can go to a couple IndyCar races. Um, so, yeah, it's it's, you know... There's a, there's a difference kind of internally with me of like, you know, the fan perspective and the professional perspective. I think it would be great for American racing and especially for, you know, different international series to really get a foothold in America. And I think a great way to do that is to have an American driver to cheer for. Um, but yeah, there's, it, it, it's difficult to make it happen. And there's also a lot of people who, would rather these drivers stay local so that you can you can actually go to the racetrack and see them for an affordable price. Definitely. Um, just just to just to pull it back to where what what New Garden actually said. I mean, he, he he wasn't saying he wanted to do F one. Although, yeah, maybe a few years ago he would have been a good choice. But he, he was mm-hmm. he was more saying that you needed to come up through the European system just because of the way yeah. that uh, teams pick their drivers. I mean, there's such a strong academy system for these F one teams mm-hmm. these days, and I. 
I guess maybe there was a hint of sadness that he'd never been asked, but I, I, I honestly don't think that he would forfeit his IndyCar career for anything. I mean, he's been fantastically successful, hasn't he? He has been. And I'm, I definitely agree with the sentiment that, like, y- you do have to kind of be talent spotted at a young age just to make it anywhere near Formula One these days. Um, as much as I wish it was true, sheer talent alone isn't going to cut it. You kind of you have to have your connections. You have to have your in, um, and we've seen plenty of very good drivers like Pascal Verline, who even was well connected, but the timing just wasn't right. Mm. Um, so it, you do have to kind of be spotted, and there's not that w- no one's looking in America quite yet, um, and, and no one's picking out drivers for the Red Bull Junior program out of the Indy Car Feeder Series. Um, you know, it happens every so often, but it, it's it's less, you know, with the intention of getting to Formula One and more just supporting a, a good athlete. Um, so it, it's it's you do have to kind of have those connections. You have to have the the ins and you have to, you know, be willing to sacrifice a lot to be in those programs. Um, and I just it, it just hasn't happened um, for a Formula One driver you know a category driver over here in indycar you talking about connections uh, brings me mm-hmm. to a different train of thought which is um as a journalist and as someone who has a reputation for being honest in what you write uh you've still got to build connections and you've, you've still got to build trust mm-hmm. with with drivers and with teams um how how do you go about um, letting them know that you are a trusted source and someone that they can talk to without you doing a hit job on them, and yet you're going to write the thing that is going to get the most views on Jalopnik? Um, it, it's it's a good balancing act, isn't it? It really is, um, and I think Jalopnik also has a reputation as being someone who's not afraid to do hit pieces, um, and that's that's never been my approach to writing, and I think that's something that I've had to establish less through my connections and more through just practice um, to show like I don't talk bad about a race series with the specific intention of being mean to someone or being mean to the series or you know whatever the case may be Um, as I've said before when it comes to you know reviewing cars um, there's not a bad car on the market unless it's something that makes you feel desperately unsafe because every car is good for someone and a good car review is finding that someone it works for um not just trashing a car because you know it's not what you like personally um and the same kind of has had to come through racing where i have i've had to show that you know my my analysis of a race and of these drivers and of you know the things i do with their interviews are not with the intention of hurting someone or of finding, uh, you know, finding a sensational story. It's always kind of come from, you know, I come with the best of intentions um, as someone who loves racing and who wants to kind of see racing do well. Um, it really wa- it really has come from that place of love and taking a lot of time to prove that. Um, I think IndyCar was a great place for me to get my foothold because I had gone to so many races as a fan that a lot of Mm. the drivers and team personnel and PR people knew who I was just as someone who would show up to like seven races a year. Um, 
which then, you know, I had to use those to kind of establish myself as, okay, here we go. Um, I'm not here to be, to be mean or to, you know, trash anyone. Um, I'm here to talk to you about the thing that you love to do and find a great story in, in that aspect. Um, so, so, so when, it, when, when you first came into the IndyCar paddock, um, how tremendously exciting was it? Because uh, I just remember the, um, the first time I got into the Formula E paddock, admittedly it was a long time after I wanted to be a motorsport journalist when I actually, you know, got to be one. But um, I just remember being completely overtaken by this sense of, uh, you know, not having enough time to do everything uh, because it's so tremendously exciting and adrenaline filled. W- was mm-hmm. that the sense that you got or were you a bit more measured about the whole thing, a bit more cool about the whole thing? I think I'm still like incredibly excited. I mean, I was at Mexico City this weekend and I was still a little bit overwhelmed and you know it comes from that part of me that is still a fan inside uh, beyond anything else and I am very aware of the fact that I get to do exactly what I love to do and that's talk about racing Um, so there's a sense of like you know I need to be responsible with the the opportunities that I have been given um, and with the things that I've earned but I also need to temper that a little bit. Like I can't just gush about my favorite driver. There has to be some, some, some bias, you know, there has to not be bias. There has to be, you know, I have to be tempered with it. Um, but yeah, I've, the funny thing is that with IndyCar, um, despite having had press credentials for some races, I always feel like I'm a fan more than anything else Um, because the series, it's always been very open. Um, And when I was going as a fan, you could very easily buy paddock passes. You could very easily end up in a garage somewhere um, hanging out with a driver or something um, because there there aren't those kind of boundaries that you get, I think, with a little bit more of the international racing. Um, So that, that was always, I think that was part of why I loved IndyCar and part of what made it so easy to write about them was like, I didn't necessarily need to be in the media in order to do it. Uh, it certainly has helped, but you know, even, even in an event like, you know, Mexico city where there is, there were limitations. Um, only so many people could get credentials. Only so many people could attend. There's still this, this sense of like, I can't believe I get to do this. Uh, I want to do everything. Um, I want to interview everyone. I want to talk to everyone. I want to see everyone. I want to be a fan for a little bit and watch from a grandstand because, you know, that is still who I am. So, yeah, I definitely, I keep my cool in the sense of trying not to show it. uh, But I think inside there's still this just immense joy and excitement that this is what I get to do. Yeah, um, can totally concur with that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm just thinking back to um, the conversation we were having a minute ago about uh, the perception of pieces versus the intention, and mm-hmm. and um, th- mm-hmm. there are certain drivers who um, who do give away those nuggets where if um, if you're just in it for the hit, then you take that. But uh, th- there is a kind of an exercise of restraint that you've got to do if you want a good relationship with his team and with him later, isn't there? Yeah, 
you you always have to kind of balance what you've got here right now with what you're going to get in the future. You know, you kind of have to there there's a balancing act. You have to weigh these these things that you get. You know, there there are a lot of stories that I absolutely could write that would be, you know, people would not be happy with it. Um but there's there's there comes that time where it's like this isn't something that it's you know no one is being hurt by me withholding this information um no one no one is going to use this information to make an informed judgment call this is just going to be something sensational um if if i'm not providing like tangible important facts to someone that could you know better someone's life then there's no sense in me kind of writing about it i am not a gossip journalist um I'm not TMZ. I'm, you know, I'm trying to work on a basis of mutual respect. And I would absolutely hate it if someone were to take something I said in an interview out of context or, you know, take a moment of my vulnerability and use that against me. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, these are people that we're speaking to and we're working with. These are, you know, drivers are not just media personalities that exist in a vacuum. Um, and if it's something that I wouldn't want someone saying about me or using, you know, regarding me, then it's not something I'm going to go out of, on a limb and report on because, you know, it, it's, that's not the way that it needs to be. Like if it's, if someone is legitimately going to be hurt by me withholding this information, it's a different story. Um, but a lot of the, the sensationalisms just don't need to happen. Yeah, and it's it's motorsport. It's not like we're interviewing the yeah. Russian prime minister or something, you know. It's it's um, exactly. It's, um, it's 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 meant to be entertainment at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's it's fun. It's not it's not going to you know unless it is literally going to cause someone physical harm. Like if a driver told me I'm intentionally going to crash into someone at a race, you know, maybe that that's something I want to talk about. But I have never had that happen, so there's no sense in me going out of my way to report that. Sure. Um, I wanted to uh, go back to your creative writing background because that's really interesting to me because uh, a lot of motorsport journalists write books, but it's obvious that they're written by a motorsport journalist. I get the sense that if you wrote a book, it would not be so obvious because you've obviously come from that background of liking full length books and reading a lot of them and, uh, you know, potentially writing them yourself. Uh, would you ever write a motorsport novel and would you ever would you ever consider ghostwriting someone's autobiography? So the funny thing is that I actually have two motorsport novels uh, drafted and written currently. Um, I just need to sit down and actually go through them and go through the process of pitching them to agents and publishers and whatnot. Um, but that, I mean, that was the whole reason why I wanted to write about racing was I wanted to write books about racing. The journalism part and the fact that I get to go do things that are happening now is incredible. And I love every second of it. But the true thing that I've always wanted to do is to write fiction books and to be a novelist. So um, being able to kind of use what I've learned as a way to write books and stories and to make things unique and make things up out of my own mind um, is the biggest privilege I could ever have. Is it 
easier to work with fictional characters rather than real life ones because you can uh, you can draw on real life experiences without having to get the facts exactly right and you can be creative exactly um, you know I've written novels so fictional books I've also worked on a nonfiction investigation of rich energy and its sponsorships in motorsport and there is oh, a whole wow. different yeah, there's a whole different approach to what I do with the fiction stuff uh, and what I do with the nonfiction stuff. Um, the Rich Energy book has been over two years in the process, and that's been diligent fact checking. Um, you have to go through and edit. You know, that's going to come across as a very journalistic book because we've had to edit so much of the sass out of it. Um, any of the Anything that could be a liability in a courtroom, um, you know, we can't make assumptions, we can't make judgments, and we can't use words that would convey any of those things and to make someone believe something. We have to be very neutral uh, and just report the straight facts and hope that people will come to the conclusions that we've come to. Um, and that is, you know, I feel very confident that we've done that, but that was so much more work than you know, writing something, you know, I wrote a story, one of my novels is about Formula One and, you know, in like, I think it's 1971. Um, and it's fictional characters where, you know, I've taken the dates of when these races happened, the weather of when these, you know, what these races have been, and some of like the details that have existed, and then kind of situate my own characters in there, um, which is so much easier. Uh, I can kind of you know, use cues from other drivers. Um, a lot of the drivers that I've invented have taken little bits and pieces from historical drivers. Um, and then I've turned it into something different um, based on how I think that those personality factors would play together. Um, it's it's a lot more fun. It is a lot less work uh, than the Rich Energy book has been. Uh, yeah, and um, I, I'm, I'll, I'll come on to the fiction stuff in a moment. Let's put a pin in that uh, because um, I'm really interested in that. But uh, the Rich Energy book, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, so um, I, I think uh, when people talk off the record, they talk very frankly about their views about uh, what Rich Energy is and what it represents. And uh, um, obviously, I'm not going to uh, get any gotchas out of you before the book's published. But um, will we be surprised by what we read, even in a social media saturated world where we think we know everything about Rich Energy? Yes, um, there we, we've had personal interviews with a lot of people that have been involved with Rich Energy in some way. We've talked to people who were there at the beginning when this brand was first founded. Um, we've we've talked to, oh my God, so we, we have hours of interviews. We've, you know, found documents that no one has seen before. And it, it is going to be surprising. Um, and there are, there are still a lot of stories that we got but couldn't publish because we couldn't get someone to say that on the record um so you know there there is hope for a sequel um <laughs> based on how the reception is with the first one a lot of people were very hesitant to talk to us um and i can understand that they didn't want their names associated with something and you know something complex in their professional lives that had happened but you know the people who were willing to talk to us were 
you know, I'm, I'm co-writing it with my uh, co-worker, Alanis King. And hmm. there were so many times where she would interview someone or I would interview someone and we'd have to like get on a phone call just to talk about it because it was like, you're not going to believe what I just heard. Um, so it is, it is going to be very exciting. It's, it's going to be worth the read. You know, I am biased. I think it's a good book, um, but, but I think other people are going to find the same thing. The, the thing I can't forgive Rich Energy for, well, there are many things I can't forgive Rich Energy <laughs> for, but, but one, one of them is uh, uh, Peter Windsor getting Mario Andretti to advertise it in one of Peter Windsor's uh, vlogs. Um, I, I yeah. found that unconscionable personally. Yeah, there were there were a lot of Peter Windsor videos that were sponsored by Rich Energy and where he had um, other drivers speaking about Rich Energy, which, you know, that, that was a... That was complex in and of itself, and Peter Windsor did not want to talk about it uh, with us. But yeah, that was—I was not a fan of that either. But but the the thing is, in a way, is is all news good news? Because the, the reason I ask this is because on my Instagram feed there are still people who follow me who are micro influencers for Rich Energy. So mm-hmm. um, surely. The, the thing to have done was to have changed the name to Lightning Vault back when they changed the company name to Lightning Vault rather than uh, stick with this quite toxic brand. And it, it's kind of amazing to me that Rich Energy is still a thing. It's surely now like making Fetch a thing. It shouldn't be something that is that is still in, in existence and yet on it chugs in various forms of sports, including motorsports. Um, why mm-hmm. is that? I I think that what we kind of learned is that the CEO William Story is an incredible salesperson. Um, and we spoke to him. We only had the pleasure of speaking to him once. Uh, but during that process, uh, we could have been easily swayed to believe what he was selling. Had we not had some of the facts already in our possession uh, about the financials of what this company had and about kind of the reception that it had had with other athletes. Um, it it's it it's intoxicating to have someone present to you this product um and it wasn't just a product it was presented as a lifestyle um a lot of the other athletes that we had spoken to you know they it was about going to nightclubs and about going to these big boxing matches and about representing a brand in these luxury um uh, niche ways that you normally wouldn't have a you know an energy drink involved you know it 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 was something kind of fun and exciting and you know had I been pitched on it before I knew anything I'm you know I'm probably would have been like yeah this sounds really cool um it's it blows my mind that there are still people who are willing to work with rich energy after very public fallouts um but as you will learn more about in the book there were a lot of people who felt that they could either revamp the brand and use that recognition to kind of launch something a little bit more successful um and a little bit more interesting um there there are a lot of people who frankly just need a sponsorship and who need a platform um and it, it is this matter of almost finding the lowest common denominator and selling a product to them and pitching a sponsorship to them because you know that they need it and that they'll accept it. 
um, as opposed to, you know, I don't think we'll ever see rich energy in Formula One again, but I do think we'll continue to see rich energy in a lot of lower divisions of motorsport and in other sports around the world because, you know, rich energy has, it has legacy. Uh, it's not always positive, but people believe that they can take that and do something positive with it. And uh, Claire Williams doesn't get a lot of credit these days, uh, maybe unfortunately, mm -hmm. but uh, she did two great things at Williams, uh, among many. She turned down rich energy and yeah. um, she supposedly walked out of a meeting with a very rich investor uh, who may or may not be the dad of an F1 driver on the grid uh, because he was being sexist. So um, I I think uh, uh, he, he apparently refused to address her. He addressed uh, the other board members instead. So so uh, yeah. I, I, I kind of like her for that. But turning yeah. down rich energy, I think, is, is is a good mark on her book. She So I'm not actually convinced she turned down rich energy. Um, what I believe we've gathered has happened was that William Story simply didn't show up to a meeting that they were supposed to have. And the deal was dead at that point. Oh. Um, because what Haas had offered as a sponsorship was less than what Williams was asking. Um so it was a, it was a matter of it being a little bit a little bit cheaper to have their name on the grid. Uh, Williams was was asking for a lot more money. That's interesting. That's yeah. that's really interesting. Um, and yeah. I'm 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 sure I'm sure there is at least a footnote about the Rick Parfit Junior white white bikes um, uh, comedy fiasco as well. That that was. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think he won the internet the weekend that he repainted yeah. his Bentley with white bikes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, I believe that he's the hashtag no more bad energy or something as well, which was just hilarious. Um, yeah, that, there are so many different tangents that we talk about in this book that are just absolutely hilarious that like I really I'm like encouraging people to tweet at us as they're reading it just to be like, I can't believe this um, <laughs> so that I can once again say I know. Right. <laughs> Well, I, I tell you what, when it comes out, uh, I will do a podcast entitled I Read the Rich Energy Book and I Can't Believe It. I would love that. I would absolutely love that. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, I would love to have you and or Alanis uh, on the podcast again when it comes out because uh, there's so much to talk about there. Uh, what's the book going to be called? We're not sure yet. Uh, we're still workshopping titles with our publishing company. But the goal that we have, it is currently slated to be published this fall. So we should have more details about that in the near future. Um, but we're still in that kind of finalization phase of what it's going to look like, what it's going to be called, um, and how it's going to be packaged. Okay. Well, um, I'm I'm sure we will find out um, uh, in, in due course. Uh, and mm -hmm. it, it's, it's going to be out uh, in spring or summer this year. It'll be out in the fall. Um, we're hmm. we're aiming to have it coincide with the United States Grand Prix. Fantastic. Um, so, I I would I would imagine there are a lot of interesting other a lot of other interesting things in store for you this year. Um, what is your view on the state of motorsport? Obviously, we're coming into a climate emergency, or we're already in the middle of it, depending on what you believe. And, um, um. There is the pressure on car manufacturers to to electrify uh, some, doing it at different speeds to others. And 
Motorsport seems to be on the fence about this. You've got Formula E and Extreme E, obviously, doing various forms of environmental marketing um, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, pushing the electric agenda. And then you've got other forms of motorsport saying, shall we go hybrid? Uh, maybe a little bit hybrid, but mm-hmm. not hybrid in the way that's useful for the road. And um, where is motorsport going to be in 10 years? And will we recognize it by then? I think it's it's a complex question. Um, because when you look at where the emissions are coming from from motorsport, it's not coming from the combustion engines themselves or the hybrid powertrains. Um, it comes from the freight and the shipping costs and you know the the parts where you have to take this circus around the world. Um, and I think you know it is interesting that we have a lot of uh, series that are just now considering hybrid engines. Um, you especially get that here in the United States where we're very far behind in our understanding of electric vehicles and, you know, climate friendly options. Uh, the Toyota Prius is still kind of a joke here because, you know, driving a hybrid car is girly and, you know, it is what it is. But I I do think we're going to see a lot more electrification. I don't necessarily know that we're going to see total electrification for series like IndyCar or NASCAR or Formula One, just because they have that argument that the racing itself is not the disastrous part for the climate. Uh, it's it's the fact that you know you have to fly a lot of people around the world, that you have to ship goods all over the place, um, that you have to feed people on site. Um, all of these other these things that come into play, I think we're probably going to see the biggest revolutions in those respects because those, you know, they're behind the scenes, but they're slowly becoming more obvious as being the problem. You know, with Formula, I'm sorry, with Extreme E, they released their sustainability report recently, and almost all of the emissions that they created during the season was done through shipping the, you know, shipping the cars and the tents and the equipment from one race to the next. Um, I think that is, you know, we're obviously, we've already seen that series are hesitant to go full electric. I think we will continue to see that. Um, and I think that the bigger changes and the bigger incentives are going to be coming from offsetting and eliminating the the freight emissions, which um, I know is not kind of the answer that most people give but motorsport is very stuck in its ways and i think the longer it can stay the same with its on-track performance uh the longer it'll continue to do that i think if we can you know if if there's a way to reduce air travel they're probably going to do that before they do anything else uh, well, um, thank you so much for talking to me um, on the podcast, Elizabeth Blackstock. And um, uh, go, go follow her on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, Elizabeth? It is at Eliz, E-L-I-Z underscore Blackstock. And uh, thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I was, it was a pleasure to be here. <laughs>